Today we begin with a spoiler alert, though it is a spoiler from years ago. And I'm not talking about spoiler alert, Jesus rose from the dead. No, slightly more recent than that. From the 2008 film, Doubt. Honestly, if you haven't watched this movie in the 14 years since it was released, I can't imagine it will be too much of a loss if I ruin the ending. Anyway, in the 2008 film Doubt, starring Meryl Streep as Sister Aloysius, she plays a nun at a Catholic church in 1964 in the Bronx. There is a progressive priest named Father Brendan Flynn, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who gives a homily on Doubt noting that, like faith, it can be a unifying force. Sister Aloysius, the strict conservative principal of the school's parish, becomes concerned when she sees a boy pull away from him in the courtyard. Her sisters are told to be alert and suspicious of activity in the church. For almost two hours, we wonder with her what are the secrets of this priest and this parish. How does the old order of things meet the new order? Sometime later, Sister Aloysius tells another sister, James, played by Amy Adams, that Flynn has since been appointed to a new, more prestigious position at a larger church. She reveals that she lied about contacting a nun in Flynn's former parish, reasoning that if it was false, the ruse would not have worked. To her, his resignation is proof of his guilt. Sister James, still believing in Flynn's innocence, is shocked by her lie. But Sister Aloysius restates, in the pursuit of wrongdoing, one steps away from God, but adds that doing so comes with a price. Then she breaks down, tearfully exclaiming, I have doubts, I have such doubts. Her tearful expression of doubt in a way that only Meryl Streep is able to do is reminiscent of the painfulness it involves to reveal our doubts to another person, to not know what we truly believe or what our lack of belief means for our lives. Meryl Streep's painful expression of doubt reminds me of what it must have felt like to be Thomas. Thomas has small roles in the stories of the disciples and Jesus leading up to this point. We first meet Thomas in John 11:16 when Lazarus has died. Thomas encourages the disciples to go with Jesus to see his body. In this moment, he is brave and an encourager of the movement and trust in Jesus. He presents himself as completely invested in Jesus. The second time, we meet Thomas, is in John 14, when Jesus has just finished his soliloquy on going to prepare a place for the disciples. And Thomas is the first disciple to speak up and say, what? I don't get it. I'm not good with directions, Jesus, and there's no GPS yet. It's quite unlike most men asking for directions, am I right? He is willing to question willing to seek answers for what he longs for, and still totally invested in Jesus. And so we land on John 20. Thomas has watched Jesus die. Thomas had watched the man who told him strange things about life and death, who had inspired him, 
who he bravely followed, who he passionately loved and cared for, die a gruesome death. Jesus was Thomas's friend, and he loved him. And he was gone. Afraid, tired, and sad, Thomas went off to nurse his broken heart alone. He did not look for consolation with the disciples. Perhaps he was tired of them and their behavior, watching them deny Jesus over and over. Or perhaps he was just too heartbroken to be with other people. Sadness begins in loss. It begins with the recognition of darkness. And it begins with a feeling of apartness. Sadness and silence can be palpable. In the face of true heartache, true loss, there are no words, no expressions of consolation that work, that fix the situation. Language fails in those moments. I do a lesson on the relationship between faith and doubt in my work at Timberline Knowles. The place where residents always latch into the conversation is on the idea that doubt itself is not so hard to live with. It's when others don't acknowledge our doubt, or as real or valid, that the pain sets in. Just the other day, a resident told me about losing her father and brother in a short period of time. When she voiced the question of why to her church, the people around her responded with, everything happens for a reason. And that was the moment she became disillusioned with faith. Her feelings of doubt were misaligned with the thoughts and faith of others, and she could not reconcile her feelings with their statements. So she became angry at them, angry at God, and angry at herself for being unable to make the ascent to faith. Thomas was living this moment of faith in flux. He had this deep, intense heartache, and he goes to his friends finally when he's ready to be with other people and begin healing. And they say to him, don't be sad. We have seen Jesus. His heartache, just like my residence, was not seen. It was dismissed and rejected. Thomas, in his heartache, in his pain, couldn't take it. Sometimes in life, we speak of knowledge that lives in our head and lives in our hearts. We make a separation between the two and say one is better than the other, superior in one way or another. Most people, when asked, will say that their soul sits in their heart or in their belly. The belly is a Jewish belief. Most people don't see the soul as living in your head. Sure, there are some traditions that speak of what's called the third eye that sits in our heads, but that tends to connect us to wisdom, contemplation, insight, mental functioning. Our minds tend to think through all the emotional stuff in our lives and sort out what we believe and feel. Recently, I heard a psychologist talk about the phenomenon of trusting your gut. What does it mean to trust your gut? This is when your intuition kicks in and people have a response to what happens when you do or do not trust your gut. Well, the psychologist framed it as this. When you feel something in your gut, trust it. 
because usually it's representative of the phenomenon of our bodies and souls knowing something before our minds can catch up, before our minds have a chance to process it. Think about it, our bodies and souls knowing something before we process it. It's pretty cool, right? Thomas trusted his gut. It was part of his character. He knew something was wrong. He knew he was in pain and not able to be with others. When he returned to them and was confronted with the idea that his grief may be misplaced, he was rightfully upset. His pain should not have been dismissed, except that what the disciples told him was true. They had seen Jesus. They had gotten the miracle that could lift them out of their pain and heartache. They were finally happy. In their happiness, they were unable to connect with Thomas's sadness. But Thomas was firm. I want proof. Faith is often described as evidence of things unseen. Due to the unseenness of faith, faith is hard. Faith often feels like work. The thing about belief and faith here is that we often ascribe doubt to Thomas, and we make it a bad thing. For Thomas, his doubts were not a bad thing. Thomas asked for a sign. Thomas asked for real proof. It's logical and real. And perhaps he was jealous as well that his friends have seemingly overcome their pain so quickly. And he seems angry, saying, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and his, my hand in his side, I will not believe. Take that, you fools. Thomas had experienced enough pain due to his friends and the loss of them. It is as if saying, fool me once, Shame on me, fool me twice, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Jesus had taken his heart once, and he was not about to give it up again without some proof. Thomas was not about to fall for another heartbreak. And we don't know how the disciples felt about uh, Thomas's doubts, how they perceived him. When, asked for, when he asked for a sign, were they like, oh boy, here goes Thomas again, asking for stuff? Or were they angry with him? Come on, man, why can't you just believe us? Certainly, whatever their response was, they did not reject him from their midst. A week passes, and Thomas stews in his anger at his friends, at his God. Perhaps he was tired of hearing the disciples prattle on about Jesus being alive. After all, Thomas was pr pragmatic enough to know that if his disciple friends kept telling this little yarn about Jesus being raised from the dead, they would get themselves killed as well. But all their energy regarding a risen Jesus would not quit. So they gathered again, presumably for a Sabbath meal, and Jesus appears. Peace be with you. And without Thomas even having to say it, Jesus immediately offers to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas never said a word in this moment. Thomas asked for a sign a week ago, 
and Jesus offers the sign willingly. The Bible never actually says if, G- if Thomas touches Jesus. Some say that Jesus' mere presence before them was enough for Thomas. Others say that when he was offered, he had to touch the side of, it, of him or his hands. And how different is this than what Mary experienced? Mary, after seeing the resurrected Jesus, was told not to touch, not to hold on. And Thomas is offered everything. Everything. Thomas's response, my Lord and my God, is a statement of faith. It is the deepest expression of truth and recognition around. A real acknowledgement that Jesus is with Thomas. Jesus saw Thomas and was right there with him. Many people grow up believing that if we doubt for even a moment, we commit a sin against God. Thomas shows that this is simply not true. For Thomas was firm in his doubt and disbelief, but Jesus came to him and did not pronounce judgment on him. Jesus did not belittle Thomas or judge him at all. Jesus simply offers an invitation. Come, see, touch, believe. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas needed and when he needed it in order to believe. God is not so small that God can't take our doubts and our questions and our wanderings. And God is not so small that we, if we express these doubts, change God's character, change who God is. God is the eternal truth, and we can choose to believe or not. We are all invited to the faith and grace of Jesus, the faith and grace to believe. We are not too big or too small for God to love us. And in truth, we only doubt things that really matter to us. So we don't doubt that gravity exists. And we don't doubt that the earth is round. At least we should not doubt that. Uh, Thank you, but no thank you, flat earthers. Because we honestly don't care that much. Most of us live our lives not considering gravity most of the time. But we doubt certain things in our lives. We doubt other people and that people love us because it matters, because we want and deserve love. We doubt ourselves and our abilities to succeed and accomplish things because we want achievement so badly. We doubt God because the answers matter, because we want to know how and why things in our lives happen and because we actually care. Thomas doubted because it mattered. It meant life and death to him. And he grieved the ultimate expression of love. And he needed to know the truth. He needed to know for himself if Jesus lived because he needed Jesus in his life. We are not so far removed from Thomas. We doubt our faith because it matters because our love and our lives define us and we wanna know the truth. We want answers, we want healing, we want hope. Some of us revere Thomas. He asked to see proof and he got that opportunity. 
We ourselves don't seem so lucky most of the time. We hold little hope of having a similar experience as Thomas, since we are so far removed from the immediacy of Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus didn't see this as so. This was not Jesus' truth. Jesus calls us blessed, us sitting here today. We are blessed. Blessed are you who believe and do not get the opportunity to touch the side of Jesus. Blessed are you who trust even without sight. The leap of faith that it takes to believe without sight or touch or sound cannot be discounted. It is work, but it is the best work we will ever do. To hold on to faith in the midst of doubts takes strength and courage. Our doubts often become our friends because they protect us. They tell us, oh no, we've seen that thing over there. We are not going to look at that again. Or, oh no, that's not good. It wasn't good before. It's not going to be good now. We know these doubts and uncertainties about ourselves so intimately. Faith can seem like a dream, like a reality that's not meant for us or about us. In many ways, our doubts are about trusting our feelings over those beliefs. As in the case of Thomas, he felt hurt, and he trusted and believed that, so much so that he could not believe his friends. He could not trust their evidence as expressed in their belief. One of the few assumptions that the Bible makes, regardless of time, regardless of book within the Bible, regardless of place, is that God is real. God exists. It's not so much about, does God exist? Scripture never answers that question because it's assumed that God does. But rather, the question that comes up over and over in Scripture is what does the existence of God mean for people, for nature, for the people who believe, Jewish and Christian, So when Thomas expresses his doubt and says he wants proof, he stands in a long tradition of psalmists and other writers who say, God is real, but where is God? When I cannot see him, when I cannot feel him, where is God? For Thomas, he thought he knew God through Jesus. With the death of Jesus, his whole world turns And he questions whether or not what he believed was real, whether he actually knew God. His ultimate question is, where is God in my suffering? And Jesus reveals the answer, which of course has relevance to our lives today. Jesus is right there in his sufferings. Jesus doesn't even need us to repeat our requests for signs or deliverance from our thoughts. Jesus knows it already. God knows it already. And what does Jesus ask of us in return? Nothing. To stand in awe of what God has done and continues to do. We do not earn or lose the love of God. Thomas begins with an act of faith saying, My Lord and my God. So it is that we seek with our own hearts to respond the same. Doubt is not the end of our faith. 
just like death is not the end of the story. The doubts may plague us, for sure, and cause us to cry out in pain and disbelief, but they do not separate us from God. For God wants to meet us in our doubts and open the door to new life and a hope that awaits when Jesus reveals truth to our hearts. This Sunday, I invite you to have a little doubt, to make a little room in your heart for Jesus to meet you in your questionings, in your longings, in your pain. Today, we can take comfort in Thomas and his faith. Though he doubted, he came to believe. He knew the resurrection to be true, and it changed his life. Today, we are the product of his faith. Blessed are those who believe in spite of the passage of time, in spite of principalities and powers, in spite of heartache, in spite of ourselves. Blessed is the Lord who reveals God to us and God's love for us through our doubts and discouragements and seeks to welcome us into faith. Therefore, let us welcome the Lord to new life with words of my Lord and my God. Amen.